I have the honor and the privilege of being able to talk with Brian Pirtle today. I have, man, been following him for years now and his ability to articulate the gospel, man's great need for the all supreme, all sufficient Christ uh, really touches my heart. The way he picks quotes from people from the past just shows me he is so well read and studied uh, of the Puritans and also just deep spirituality, but his depth of the word of God and his work over there where he's at in Kansas City. uh, Just I'm so excited for you guys to hear from him today, but I picked the scripture to start us out. It's the end of Hebrews and it says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes. Isn't it amazing? Yes. <laughs> so the first subject I wanted to get your thoughts on is communion with God, how important it is. And it's it, the, the fact that it is heaven on earth, even here. I, I pulled a quote here from Spurgeon. He says, his presence removes the dullness which else hangs like a cloud on the best of our conditions and in this way lightens all our glooms. His countenance is to his saints as a morning without clouds. It brings with it a surprise of joy till Jesus communed with me. I did not know that I could be so happy. I heard more birds singing in my soul than I had ever dreamed could have dwelt within me. Never had my sad soul imagined that human life was half as capable of divine bliss or earth within a thousand leagues so near to eternity. Truly, it is worthwhile to have lived if for nothing more than to have had an hour's fellowship with the well-beloved. Earthly joy is no more to be compared with it than a lamp in a coal mine can be likened to the sun in the heavens. Oh my God, I thank thee for having made me because thou hast made me able to walk in the light of thy countenance. (laughs) In, In my heart, those words caused me to ring out with just a freshness in, in my own heart. How, how do you see communion to be uh, important in the Christian's life? Well, at the end of the day, the glory of God and communion with God are the center of God's eternal purpose. And <clears throat> communion with God, uh, Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus, the Messiah, whom you have sent. And so eternal life is elsewhere spoken of as our inheritance uh, in the age to come, as adopted sons. Eternal life is spoken of as uh, just the sheer fact that we, because of Jesus as sons, will live forever. But in John 17, Jesus describes it in this uh, kind of paramount way, that it is knowing the one true God. And communion with God then is uh, definitive of discipleship altogether. Without communion with God, we don't know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
without hearing him, without uh, the, the kind of dynamic that was uh, that became customary for the disciples. And they staggered in this as we staggered, as we stagger in this uh, growing as believers. But there became a time in the book of Acts where the, the religious leaders looked upon them and knew somehow that they had been with Jesus. And so communion with God is... Uh, in this fallen world, which has been subjected to futility, according to Paul in Romans 8, uh, in these bodies of death, as Paul calls them in Romans 7, we have limitations. But the height of joy and the height of holiness and the height of uh, our taste of the inheritance which is to come now has to do with communion with God. And it's interesting that I, I didn't know you were going to bring up communion with God. And just before uh, we logged on here, I was looking at a note I had written in my Bible from W.C. Burns, who was a missionary to China that preceded Hudson Taylor. Uh, and he actually was a pastor in Scotland in the early to mid 19th century. And when Robert Murray McShane traveled from uh, Scotland there where he was to Jerusalem to scope out the condition of the, the mission to the Jewish people. He handed over the pastorate to W.C. Burns for a time. And while McShane was gone, uh, the spirit of God was poured out in a remarkable way there in Scotland and, and hundreds of people were being converted in the midst of that uh, heightening work of the spirit, people being convicted of sin, people coming uh, to, tr to treasure Christ through the gospel, uh, W.C. Burns basically vanished and went into the heart of China, where Hudson Taylor would bump into him years later. Uh, having heard of Burns, he asked the natives when he arrived, Taylor asked the natives, uh, have you heard of a man named W.C. Burns? And one of the, one of the native Chinese uh, told him, yes, he's the holiest man in China. Well, I say all of that by way of preface just to say, I looked at this quote from W.C. Burns just before we connected, and his statement here is, let not the question be with us, how must we ensure our safety, but rather, how much communion can we possibly attain to while here on earth? Let that be the question of the child of God. And I think it's akin to Robert Murray McShane's prayer. Oh, God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. How much communion might I have with you while on this earth? So there's so much that should be said about communion, but uh, the sweetness of communion, the fear of the Lord that is to be obtained in communion with God, uh, the knowledge of God, the beholding and expansion of our apprehension of his excellencies. Uh, it comes from the place of communion with God in the scriptures chiefly, but with prayer as well. Uh, we need the scriptures, of course, because God has breathed them out for us, for our benefit and for our instruction. And how shall we know who, who we are communing with unless we have been rightly instructed about him from his word? And yet uh, there is this reality that the, the spirit of God must work in our hearts if we would rightly revere and treasure and obey and delight in his word. All of this is central to communion, and that communion is unattainable apart from 
the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is foundational and central. Any attempt at communion with God that does not come through the son who was slain and who rose and who ascended and who is soon returning will be some kind of hamster wheel effort that will not bring us into the kind of rest, uh, the kind of sanctification, the kind of joy that is promised to us in the new covenant. That's beautiful. I pulled a quote here. You, you quoted McShane. He says to them that are in Christ, there are some sweet glistenings of his countenance. There are meltings of his love and the sweet song of the turtle dove when his Holy Spirit dwells in the bosom. Have you found that most of these uh, Puritans and, and even not just Puritans, other spiritual writers, men who have had direct exchange with God, that they seem to emphasize communion as, as, as the highest thing? Certainly as something central, uh, certainly as something non-negotiable to the life of a believer, certainly as something uh, central and essential. Um, I, I don't know if I could say that without really reflecting on it in terms of statistics of what I've read, but I have never read a man that has been a benefit to my own knowledge of God, my own walk with God, my own obedience, my own joy, who did not have uh, as a central element in his life an ongoing steady state expression of communion with God uh, day by day, who had come to know what it means to walk with God, mm -hmm. um, to, to, uh, to know what it means to be circumspect before him, to be eager to, like Paul, maintain a conscience that is clear before God, uh, to drink in of the bounty of God's person and work. Uh, this is undoubtedly central. And, and we do find this laced throughout the works of the Puritans. Uh, and, and really, as you said, any, I think, men and women of God throughout church history that have been profitable to us. Mm -hmm. Communion is so central uh, to, to be speaking to God and hearing from the Lord is the life bread of the child of God. It is the righteousness, peace, and joy that we uh, are to taste of and by which we find uh, the grace that we need for our facing of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is our daily battle. So, communion with God. Uh, Would you say that, I pulled a quote here from one of the books you told me about, uh, I think a couple of years ago, um, The Valley of Vision. He says, oh, let me never lose sight of my need of a savior or forget that apart from him, I am nothing and I can do nothing. Would you say that the sense of human depravity is is a major part of, of this communion or entering into this communion? Yes. Yes. It's a major part of the very beginnings of entering that communion, namely the new birth. <laughs> uh, one does not experience the new birth, which is the means by which we enter into communion with God. That is specifically what Christ died upon the cross to achieve on our behalf, Matthew 10, 40, 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. 
in my place condemned he stood. And uh, the fact that this was his purpose, his purpose, yes, was to preach the kingdom, as he says in Luke 4. His, his purpose was to show us the Father. But none of this would have been possible. We could not receive the kingdom. Mm-hmm. We could not know the Father if he had not come to die on our behalf. And that's why Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 so fundamentally as this fact that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he held this to be of first importance. Why? Because justification is the only issue in God's economy and purpose? No. Uh, but rather because without being justified, we will never see the excellencies of God's glory. In other words, we must come to a place where we are brought to realize that apart from him, not only can we do nothing, but apart from him, we are under the very wrath of God himself. We are sinners. All have been born in Adam and in Adam all die, Paul says. But God, being rich in mercy, mm-hmm. sent his son to achieve for us what we could never have begun to achieve ourselves. And so we must be brought to the place where we are aware of our depravity, of our sin, of our need for righteousness, and of this fact that we cannot drum down deep enough within ourselves to find that righteousness. We will only find a, a, a mangled conglomeration of of positive things because we've been created in the image of God and sinful motives and wicked tendencies. This is our plight being born in Adam. And yet the last Adam has come. The last Adam has come to give to us his very righteousness. And he did it by way of a perfect sacrifice, which you read from Hebrews 13. One of my favorite benedictions in the New Testament uh, is such a wonderful statement. He, he, uh, the apostle brings in, in Hebrews 13, there, this dynamic that it is by the very blood of the everlasting covenant, the new covenant, that the church will be equipped for every good work that God has given. If we lose sight of that, if we think that based on our history with God, now we are awake to go about doing his work today, and we don't need him in the same way that we needed him on the first day we came to see him, we have lost sight of something. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing to believers and reminding them of what the gospel itself is, of course, uh, kind of a, a, a beginning foundation stone and a capstone in, in that letter to help us to see that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the foundation of the faith and of all ministry. So when he talks about the judgment seat in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about the judgment of apostolic work in particular. And the fire of, of God's judgment will be applied to, to the works of his apostleship, Paul speaking there, but also the other so-called super apostles. And uh, at, at the heart of that argument is Paul saying, I have operated by the grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. And I have operated on the basis of the wisdom of the cross. And you are being swayed by worldly wisdom. 
You've got to return to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Otherwise, you will think that your righteousness, your spirituality, your ministry somehow has issued from your own prowess or intelligence or righteousness. No, you must be able to say with Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. And so I'm fond of quoting and Spurgeon gets his second mention now, but I, but I uh, am always very often quoting this line from Spurgeon in our congregation. And as I'm discipling uh, younger brothers, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. And that's, that's a, 19th century Victorian encapsulation of the gospel. Wow. I have a great need for him. Without him, I can do nothing. Wow. And the good news tacked onto that bad news that I am under the judgment of God by nature, by nature, a child of wrath. The good news tacked onto that is I have a great Christ yes. for my need. Yes. And he's a covenant keeping God. And wow. that is our solace, our foundation. That's beautiful. I remember you posted years back. Um, Spurgeon said, I stand before God as Christ because Christ stood before God as me. Mm, Another yes. way to encapsulate all that. You just yes. recently recommended a good book to me. Um, uh, it's by Dane Ortland. I forget the name of it. Gentle and Lowly. Yes. He actually says in the book, God doesn't just meet us in our need. He lives there. Mm -hmm. I, I love that because I find that it is the the most wonderful way into experience of the Lord is to realize you have and are nothing to realize yes. again this great need. Something I find not just in the Puritans but also in King David is a uh, a recognition of the fleetingness of life. How everything is just uh, it's it's a wind. David says it like this. He says, um, teach me to number my days that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. In uh, Samuel Rutherford's uh, letters that, that you actually recommended to me as well, he says, there is less sand in your glass now than there was yesterday. And I, I find that there is a, a wisdom in recognizing we're we're going quickly towards the end. He actually says in the same paragraph there, think not that death walketh towards you at a slow pace. Do you find that this is something helpful? Do you find that this is in the Puritans and in the scriptures as well? Yes. Um, certainly, of course, you just have quoted from Psalm 90. And this is, this is uh, we're thinking about eternity here. We're thinking about an eternal perspective, an eternal vision, an eternal awareness, <clears throat> an awareness of the fleeting nature of time. We're thinking about 1 Corinthians 7. The form of this world is passing away. <laughs> Therefore, we who make use of the world should not make full use of the world. For, for Paul desires the saints uh, to have undistracted devotion to Jesus Christ. In First Corinthians seven, there, uh, th this doesn't mean that he doesn't want them to work hard with their hands. It doesn't mean he does not want the husbands to tend to their wives with great care. Uh, even though in that very passage, he's he's talking about the fleeting nature of marriage itself. 
Paul is saying, when we think about life, when we think about possessions, when we think about relationships, when we think about uh, occupation, when we think about ministry itself, we must have an awareness that the form of this world is passing away and that, that eternity must be in view. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Uh, Moses asks this question that in the very context of God's judgments, and so there's wisdom in, wisdom in thinking, the Puritans would reiterate this, but it comes from the Bible. There is great wisdom in thinking about the coming judgment of God. When, when Paul warns the saints uh, in various passages, 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and elsewhere, uh, he gives a list of, of sinful uh, habits, sinful uh, actions, and says those who engage in these will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says also to the Thessalonian saints and, and elsewhere, for those who engage in these things, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the world. And if we would have communion with God, hmm. we must be aware of his holiness, hmm. which is not separate from his kindness. His kindness issues from his holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And the gentleness and, and lowliness of Jesus is part of that holiness. And his purity is part of that holiness. His blazing hatred of immorality and idolatry is part of that holiness. And his covenantal love and condescending care for his children and the most minute affairs of our lives is part of that holiness. Uh, if we want to have communion with God, we're not just asking for some kind of a sizzling experience. We're asking that we might know him as he is. And there's nothing more powerful than that. But communion with God means that we must behold the kindness and severity of God, that we might be taught wisdom, and that we might fear him, that we might delight in him, that we might find our identity in the very person and work of Jesus Christ. And so um, now, now I'm bouncing between our, our categories that we've raised <clears throat> this afternoon, but they're, they're seamlessly connected because when I get up in the morning and I've got crust on the side of my mouth and nothing in me feels spiritual, I can take one of two routes. Well, I can take three. I can abandon uh, an, a, an aim for communion altogether, or I can aim for communion on the basis of how I feel, what I think I've achieved, what my history in God is, wow. or I can come again and stand before the throne of God's holiness, which is also the throne of grace. And it is for me the throne of grace, not because I was cuter, smarter, or more clever, more righteous. It is for me the throne of grace because it pleased the Father to crush his Son. That his throne of holiness might also be for me the throne of grace. And it becomes no less holy but it becomes the throne of grace by which I stand. Yes. And that's, in fact, the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 with reference to the gospel, this grace by which you, saints, stand. And so in that, then, I come to the place of communion. I come to every other place, Lord willing, 
to, to work, to fellowship with the saints, to make disciples, to preach God's word. Uh, I come to every other place as well on this basis, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I need communion with you today, God, or I will not be able to put one foot in front of the other. The apostle charged me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I won't be able to do that apart from grace, and therefore I come. I don't come because I'm a great hero of the faith. I come because I'm a sinner saved by grace who has been loved with an everlasting love. <laughs> and the door has been flung open that I might enter on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. And so this issue of the gospel is central yes. to communion. Then I stand in the morning, however it is that I feel, whether I feel buoyed up and encouraged, whether the devotional or the psalm was particularly invigorating that morning. I stand on one ground and one grand ground alone that Jesus Christ died rose, ascended, sent his spirit, and is returning soon yes. for his people. So, That's beautiful. I wanted to ask you, uh, we may go a little longer if that's okay. Is that okay if we take a few yes. more minutes? I've, I wanted I've to got open, the afternoon. So. Okay. Um, what has God been doing in, in your heart recently? What has he been saying to you? Well, I would say... The, the chief things that have been on my heart of late are similar things that have been on my heart for a few decades now. In particular, um, let me put it this way. I've dialogued with brothers and sisters from, from around the world, particularly in the work of missions. And one of the things that I'm eager for is to see to it that the, the foundations, biblical foundations, are unearthed in the lives of the saints in terms of their convictions, in terms of how they uh, walk out obedience to the scriptures. And I have found that three of the things that seem to be most lacking as I fellowship with brothers and sisters, many of whom are engaged in, in ministry of all sorts, is clarity in three areas. The first one is clarity with regard to the gospel. Hmm. The second one is clarity with regard to the scriptures, what the Bible is. Hmm. And the third is clarity with regard to the church. Um, and so I'm frequently asking when I, when I dialogue with, I meet new brothers, new sisters, what, what is the gospel? Uh, how do you understand the gospel? Number one. Number two, how do you understand the scriptures, what they are, what they should be in the life of a believer. And number three, how do you understand the church, the, the global church, but also the local church? And uh, I have found sadly that many, even who are engaged in what is called church planting, will have definitions of the gospel that seem quite uh, detached and untethered to what we see in the apostolic gospel given in the scriptures. And the same thing goes with uh, Jesus and the apostles' understanding of what the scriptures are. And the same thing often goes with uh, what the New Testament teaches about the church. And I think these kinds of deficiencies are certainly strengthened and maintained for want of communion with God. Uh, but, but I also think that the want of communion with God, which is so often seen, uh, is strengthened and enlarged for a want of these areas being established in accordance with the scriptures. So I'm always thinking 
about the gospel and about the scriptures and about the church. And uh, I think the apostolic vision of the New Testament uh, needs very much to be unearthed again for us. We don't need new creations. We don't need new novelties, but we need to see Jesus Christ and him crucified and the implications of his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon return. What does that mean then for we who have been purchased by his blood and who are being drawn out from among every tribe and tongue in the nations? So these things have very much been on my heart. So if you were to say um, in a nutshell for a viewer that's watching this right now, a portion of scripture that would really help them understand the gospel. Yes. Where, where would you point them? I would point them to first Corinthians 15, as I've already mentioned, uh, Paul gives that as a, a definition of the gospel itself, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he rose, that he appeared, but it's encapsulated in, in that phrase. And then uh, just like when you would click on an arrow on a website and, all kinds of things come down. That phrase, that, that Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If you could push on that in Paul's mind, I think uh, many other scriptures would drop down from the prophets, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant even, and uh, also the, the traditional teachings of Jesus that he would have been privy to. So uh, this issue really keeps sin at the forefront. You know, the issue in the world, the problem in the world is not first depression or tragedies taking place. The great problem, the great crisis of the nations is sin. And so when we lack clarity regarding the gospel, we tend to belittle what it actually means that the Son of God, the eternal Son, took on flesh, that he lived this particular life that he lived, and for the joy set before him, went to the cross and gave his life as a ransom for the many. We tend to belittle that and, and kind of make it more vague. Well, Jesus was doing something on the cross that was showing how great God's love is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. That's, of course, true. But, but what is more central even than that is that this world lies under the power of the evil one. <laughs> that That is the result of the sin of man dating back to Adam himself. And that there's only one man who could reverse that gargantuan curse. And it was one who was called the last Adam. And he did that work perfectly. And, he, and from heaven he came and sought her, his bride. And what he achieved on the cross was not just the possibility to make things a little better in the world, but literally to ransom. In the language of Revelation 5, 9, he purchased from among the nations a people for himself. Uh, He came like the invincible bridegroom (laughs) offer the perfect sacrifice when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and couldn't even think that he was worthy of being looked upon, much less treasured and worshipped. And he gave us that gift, 2 Corinthians 4. He, he, by his work, has opened our eyes. He's removed our blindness so that we might see 
and obtain the knowledge of the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. It's his face. And when he came, he came to do something specific to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. And he did this. And, and this often gets pressed to the back burner uh, in the minds of believers. And I think it is at the root of many of the ills that take place in ministry, even uh, widespread, well-known uh, moral failures, doctrinal aberrations, things of this kind. When we forget that we are needy, when we forget that Christ is the one who is preeminent, when we forget these things, we begin to think of ministry as preeminent. We begin to think of our uh, reputation as being preeminent. We, we drift away from the place where we are given to prayer, where we are given to feeding ourselves on the scriptures, where we are given to face-to-face -to -face fellowship with brothers and sisters, walking in the light. And this is what opens the door for all kinds of tragic things. And I think at the root of this, Matthew 10, Luke 10, when the disciples came back from driving out demons and healing the sick and rejoiced that demons were subject to them in his name, he said, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you in my name, but rather rejoice that your names are written mm. in heaven. What is the means by which our names are written in heaven? The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Even then, in, in early form, before the cross and resurrection had taken place, Jesus was saying, rejoice in this adoption that I will be accomplishing on your behalf. Rejoice in the fact that the Father, through the pattern and eternal Son, is making you to be sons. Yes. Rejoice in this. Otherwise, you will find yourself striving, itching, groping for something other than the grace and communion that I have graciously given. You will find yourself aiming at raising up kingdoms that, that are something so much less, so much more deficient, and frankly, so much more temporal than the eternal kingdom, which it has pleased me to give you through my son. So this is what I mean when I'm thinking about the gospel, uh, how its implications affect the way that we live and move and have our being and uh, the way we make disciples as well. Are we going to be able to grow up into being fathers as Paul was? You have many instructors, but not many fathers. And I think the answer to that is only in as much as the gospel, the implications of the gospel, the excellencies of Jesus Christ find increase in our hearts. And that's why the psalmist said, I will run in the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. Yeah. So would you say that, after the first point that you were making that the second, which is the clarity on the need for the Bible or what the Bible is, would you say that fits right in here? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Adolf Safir was right. I think to say that the Bible is among books, what Christ was among men when he walked upon the earth. And I love books. I love good books. I have thousands of them bearing down in my second floor study to such a degree that one of the other elders in our church is coming to put a new header in so that my house doesn't collapse. Um, I, I do appreciate books, but there is nothing 
like the yeah. scripture. There is nothing like what Paul called the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. There, there is nothing like the scriptures. And in Jesus's mind, and in Paul's mind, and in Peter's mind, and going all the way back to the Psalms, like Psalm 19, the second half of Psalm 19, this is explicated in the Bible, speaking about itself through its human authors as God is breathing out his inspired word. Uh, I find that what's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is something that is either little known or neglected in, in many circles, particularly circles that I have been raised in the faith in to such a degree that we are willing to elevate certain portions of scripture, but we are not willing to have the whole counsel of God. Wow. And so we may, we may adore if we are missionaries, the fact that Jesus said, go into all the world and we may adore that, but we don't adore what he says about biblical eldership or about church discipline of the unrepentant brother in the church. And we won't have any of that. We might even do what the liberal scholars have done and say that, well, Paul developed his own thing. It was quite detached from Jesus. And the fact of the matter is many of us are living in a way, we wouldn't say it this way, but we're living in such a way that we actually trust our own intuitions, our own opinions, our own methodologies more than we do what God has said through Paul, through Peter, through John, through Jesus himself. And we must return to this place that Isaiah 66, God himself speaks and says, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And one of my favorite New Testament theologians, D.A. Carson, said, there is nothing like the Bible to correct our theology. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to be thinking rightly of him and of his purposes. And we can't do that, not in the way that he aims for us and has purposed for us to do it without laying our souls and our brains and our hearts hearts and our affections before this wonderful book and being willing to be instructed and shaped by it all the way until the resurrection. <laughs> so people say to me, you know, you've been shaping theology for over 20 years and, uh, you know, how is it reading the Bible for you nowadays? And I say to them every day, every day, I taste something new in the Bible every day. I get corrected in some way or another for some way that I'm thinking about God or about his purposes or about my, my own uh, life as a child of God. Every day, something's being adjusted. Something's being refined. Something's wow. being quickened. Something's being uh, rejuvenated. Something's being corrected. And that's part of what it means. That's definitive to discipleship. Being a disciple means being a student of the master. And if I think that my opinions or my background or even my intuitions from prayer should supersede or take a place higher than what Scripture has declared, I have already given in to deception. And so we must be instructed. We must be fed by this wonderful book that it so pleased God to give us and to preserve for all of these centuries that we might know him. It's so wonderful. Dane Ortland in that in that book that you recommended to me, he said something to the effect of, "This is why we need the Bible. It's because we will make a God like us." 
Yes. Which is very uh, similar to what you're saying. So lastly, yes. you said a right understanding of the church. Can you, yes. can you just touch on that? Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, of course, rightly understanding the gospel helps us uh, quite easily, frankly, to understand what the global church is. It is that people that, that Christ has died to save and that he is sanctifying in an ongoing way and that he will one day return to save in, in the final way from these bodies of death. This is his church, his people, his body, his temple, his army. Uh, all of these metaphors are used to describe the church, but we must understand the, the, the central place that the local congregation has in the New Testament testimony. So you have the word uh, ecclesia in the New Testament roughly a hundred times. And about 90 of those times when the word is used, it's in reference to local congregations. <laughs> that should at least tell us something about the importance and priority of these local assemblies of believers. And I think we must, uh, we must understand these congregations, these assemblies, these churches, as we call them, as two things primarily. Number one, as embassies of God's kingdom, wow. a collection of ambassadors. We are his ambassadors and as beachheads <laughs> of God's kingdom. That is to say those who are advancing and taking ground for the sake of his name, wow. particularly in the great commission beachheads. So uh, what, what this would do is number one, as, as embassies representing the eternal kingdom, we would be reminded of our sonship. We would be reminded of the undeserved privilege that has been granted to us to live forever with the one true God through the work of his son. Uh, we would be reminded as Spurgeon was, which was the reason he used purple ink, that he was royalty. I have, in fact, here, let me see if I can do this. I have, in fact, up here, a piece of manuscript from, from Charles Spurgeon, one of his sermons, uh, where the stenographer was taking notes while he was preaching, and then he went back with purple ink and tweaked the stenographer's work, and then they published the sermons. And uh, he wrote with purple ink, and I have some of his very purple ink here in my study, but he did that because he battled depressions. Wow in a significant way for the, for the majority of his life. And he wrote with Royal ink to remind himself that he was royalty wow. because of the work of Christ and to fight off the lies of the accuser of the brethren, uh, knowing that we as the local church are the embassy in that sense should help us better to discern by the spirit, what it means to truly love one another, what it means to build up the body, what it means to have a commitment to one another that is loving and sacrificial, that is true, mm -hmm. that puts away falsehood, speaks the truth in love, uh, that is uh, prayerful, and on and on, reminding each other of the gospel. And, and thinking of local churches as beachheads uh, also helps us to remember that we're in a war. Mm. We are at war against the world, the flesh, 
and the devil. We are at war against the influences of this world and all of their suffocating powers. We are at war against the flesh, which is probably our greatest enemy. (laughs) If you look at the frequency of warnings in the Bible, the greatest enemy is us. Martin Luther, I think it was, said that I fear no pope uh, more than I fear the great pope myself. Uh, And that, that really is the problem. In that sense, we are in these bodies of death, and we must learn what it means daily to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. And so, uh, as, as uh, remembering that we are at war here, that local churches are like beachheads, uh, you can look at all kinds of imperatives given in the New Testament that would support this kind of warlike mentality. Uh, it's not gritting the teeth. It's not some kind of fleshly effort. It is realizing uh, that we need one another because we need Christ. Wow. That if he is the head and he is the head of a specific body, namely those whom he has purchased, those who belong to him, those who are adopted and who will experience the full adoption at the end of this age, if that is the case, then one of the great means of grace beyond prayer, beyond the Bible, beyond the help and power of the Holy Spirit is that body of believers that he has given us. And we see throughout the New Testament that not only is it a privilege, but it's a command for us to be related to the saints in such a way that the possibility of our upbuilding is there consistently and our correction is there. And even if we should, uh, if we should wander to such a degree that it becomes necessary, our own discipline. Wow. First <laughs> Corinthians five, I want to be in a church and I am by, uh, by God's grace in a church where I know that if 10 years from now, I should be prone to wander and I should harden my heart and I should give in to some substance or to some, uh, some strand of immorality, or I should begin uh, treating my wife poorly or slip off into some false doctrine. I'm going to be surrounded by brothers who are going to call me to the carpet wow. and say with the scriptures as our authority here and with love in our hearts for you, If you will not repent of these things, we can no longer consider you a brother. Mm -hmm. The name of our Lord is now, things have gotten to a place where the name of our Lord is now being drugged through the mud because of the way in which you are carrying yourself. We plead with you to repent, and we are telling you that we can no longer regard you as a brother. We're doing this with hopes that your soul will be saved Mm -hmm. in the end. And church discipline in that regard is vital. But how can you have that? How can you have that if you've not agreed to that? How can you have that if you've not seen that in the Bible? How can you value it? How can you have that if you are only a stranger passing in the night, exchanging ministerial glances in conferences and flitting to and fro without the kind of walking in the light and opening up of one's soul uh, with brothers and sisters, even with fathers and mothers in the church that the New Testament describes and which which defines the metaphor that Paul uses of the church family. You see people nowadays want community and that's a a rather attractive idea, but, but we want community on our own terms and not on biblical terms. 
the Bible goes further than this idea of community and defines the church as family. (laughs) And that means there will be comradeship. That means there will be support. That means there will be some good, bad, and ugly. That means sometimes you're going to be let down by me. Sometimes I will even sin against you in one way or another. And I will be commanded and you will be commanded to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you and to speak the truth and love. And, and there will be uh, elders shepherding for, caring for the flock. All of this is so pronounced in the New Testament. And yet there are many believers in the world I have found, even engaged in missions and, and things of this nature, who would say, eh, that's, that's just your opinion on ecclesiology. And I want to say, no, the ascended Lord has given gifts and he means for the flourishing of his people and their knowledge of God in their own personal lives and in their mission, he means for there to be churches. I remember many years ago, I was on a sabbatical. I think it was 2008 or something around that time. And in the midst of that time, I had a map of Turkey in front of me. And I didn't really know much about Turkey, but I was praying for Turkey and I was studying the travels of the Apostle Paul. And I believe the Lord spoke very clearly to me. I want local churches there. Wow. (laughs) And the fear of the Lord seized me. I was in silence for a good time after that. And I began to pray. How would you have me to be involved in this, Lord? I began to study, came to find out Turkey was a 98% Muslim nation. I didn't know that. I knew that uh, it's the main stomping ground of the apostles in the Bible. And now that land, which is stained with the ancient blood, sweat, and tears of the apostles, uh, has the Islamic call to prayer going out regularly throughout the nation. And the reports are that in a nation of 75 million people, there are probably around 5,000 Christians there. And so there is a radical need for the excellencies of Christ to be proclaimed in lands like these, Mm -hmm. where the eyes of their hearts have not yet been opened. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall one preach if he is not sent? And I want to say, how shall one be sent if he doesn't really know God? He doesn't really know the gospel. He doesn't really know the Bible. He doesn't really know the church. How shall he go and plant and nurture churches if he has not been distilled in Christ in the context of the church as the New Testament describes it? There's leeway on on secondary issues in terms of how the church functions, but there are very clear nuts and bolts apostolic convictions that bear down and, and extricate us from the unreality of various kinds of religiosity, which we would uh, tend to delight in, in the avoidance of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we need one another for that. I become more aware of my need for Christ and of my need for his people as I get older than ever I was 20 years ago when I was pursuing uh, the building up of different ministries. So that's, uh, that's what's on my heart, brother. I'd love it if um, I'm going to go through a rapid fire question. And then I'd love it if you pray those three things for the viewers. Yes. Um, so uh, is there a, a Puritan that is, 
touches you most in your personal life? Oh, goodness. That's hard to say. I, I would probably have to point to certain works of different Puritans, okay. if, if I would say that. Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed, has had massive impact uh, in my own personal heart. Uh, John Owen, Communion with God, as well as The Mortification of Sin, those two, uh, just vital. Um then there is uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Fantastic, <laughs> um, boy! I could I could go on, but yeah, these little Puritan paperbacks are very advantageous because if you go after the Puritans, number one, you're going after writings that are four and five hundred years old. Number two, if you just pick a Puritan author, you're going to find three to fifteen volumes of his work. Hmm. Uh, the Puritan paperbacks are helpful because they extract from the wider body of those works, uh, smaller books, more bite size, but still it's a big, it's a big chew. <laughs> As you know, brother. That's wonderful. I would really love it. I feel like there's a severity on the things that you've said, um, especially your three points, the knowledge of the gospel the knowledge of the word and the knowledge of what Christ desires his family to look like or be. Would you please just pray for the viewers? I mean, they're watching right now. There's, there's people that are in churches, out of churches. There's people that are close to the Lord watching. There's just people that are not so close to the Lord. Can you just kind of pray for us all? Yes. Yes. Our God and Father, we come to you on the basis of the blood of your dear Son. Lord, I don't know who is hearing this, but you know, and you know the station that they're in. You know the place that they're in. You know the struggles that they have. You know the battles that they are beleaguered with. You know the discouragements, the encouragements. You also know the idols. You also know the false identities they may be clinging to. You also know those things that they are self-medicating on in hidden places. And I want to pray today, Lord, that in accordance with Ephesians 3, those who belong to you, those who are in your church, but who are, are struggling in variegated ways, Lord, that, that you would, according to the riches of your glory, grant them to be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner being, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. We pray, Lord, that you would quicken your church that you would help us, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to see more clearly the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be satisfied with a meager delight in you. Help us not to be satisfied, Lord, with uh, self-medicating on entertainment and other things that, that are contrary to what you have already spoken to us. 
you have said that you have spoken what you have spoken, that your joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and believe and treasure and revere and to herald the gospel. And we pray also, Lord, that you would help us to delight in your word, to have it as sweeter than honey, Mm. to taste it, to revere it as the very word which has been breathed out by yourself, to tremble before it, to rejoice in it, to mine for riches in it, to study it, to pray through it, to obey it, to share it, to delight in it with brothers and sisters. We pray that the scriptures would again have their rightful place in the church, in our hearts. Would you be so merciful as to work in that way? We pray that you would strengthen your church in the sacred writings. And we pray lastly, Lord, for the church itself and for the churches. We ask, Lord, that as we come under the rod of your governance in the scriptures, as we keep in step with your spirit, that you would build up your house. Lord, that you as the ascended Lord would, in fact, equip and establish foundational workers, Mm. that you as the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest field where so many are wandering like sheep without a shepherd, that you would give to the house of God, again, godly men, godly women who would serve and make disciples in various capacities. Oh, Father, we pray that your son would be glorified. Mm -hmm. We pray that the excellencies of Christ would be known in increasing ways, that you would enlarge our hearts and increase our affections for him, for his people and for his purposes. And to him be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. In his name, we ask these things and for his sake. Amen.